Good afternoon and welcome. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks for being with us. Today on the show, a focus on black youth. A little later today, I'll speak with Kristen Henning, a lawyer for the Juvenile Justice Center at the Georgetown Law School, about her new book, The Rage of Innocence, How America Criminalizes Black Youth. But we begin with Faith Leach, Baltimore City Deputy Mayor of Equity, Health, and Human Services. She oversees the program that went into effect last week to provide alternatives for squeegee workers in Baltimore. Part of that program includes banning the practice of squeegeeing at a half a dozen intersections in the city. Part of it includes incentives and opportunities for the squeegee workers that will allow them to find sustainable work. Faith Leach joins me on Zoom. Deputy Mayor, it's good to have you back. Yes, thank you for having me. So uh, the program's been in effect for about a week. It started on January 10th. How's it going so far? So thank you so much for asking me about that, Tom. It has been um, an exciting week. So as most folks know, we rolled out our disallowed zones or our uh, enforcement protocol for for squeegee workers across six high traffic intersections on Tuesday of last week. And, you know, one thing that I've said to the public as we've gone through this process and um, one thing that they can count on from me is that I'm going to be transparent and forthcoming. And so during our first week, um, we have had um, we've, we've made some adjustments. Um, and so we've uh, worked closely with the police department. We, we meet daily. We have our outreach workers that are out. Um, and we're making sure that uh, squeegee workers know what the alternatives and what the options are. But then we're also starting to do that enforcement where we are issuing warnings to squeegee workers who are in those disallowed zones. But the balance that we are putting in place is that we have those outreach workers who are also there who can connect those squeegee workers to opportunity because that's what this is all about. It's about, it's about disrupting this culture and putting uh, squeegee workers and young people on a positive, productive pathway. I live in Reservoir Hill, and I am a frequent uh, driver at the intersection of North Avenue and Mount Royal, the entrance to 83, and that was one of the Mm -hmm. places that there were a lot of squeegee kids. That's one of the disallowed zones or a couple of others that, uh, you know, a lot of listeners will be familiar with on President Street. There's one on MLK Boulevard around Washington Street. Um, I noticed that uh, there were fewer and fewer squeegee kids or squeegee workers at the corner of North Avenue and Mount Royal uh, even well before. January 10th. I mean, do you have the sense that the word is getting out to the squeegee workers, you know, where they are no longer allowed to uh, to practice that particular thing? Yes, absolutely. And so, you know, the way the word is getting out, it's uh, because of their peers. So throughout the squeegee collaborative process, we actually worked with a group um, that we called the squeegee leadership team. And these were young people who were out on those corners every day squeegeeing. And we um, worked with them and they advised us on what the enforcement strategy should look like. They advised us on, you know, the types of services and support that that many of them and their peers um, were in need of. And so we've employed squeegee workers who actually went out and they worked with a professor from the University of Maryland School of Social Work, and they actually uh, surveyed other squeegee workers. And so that was the data that we used to inform a lot of our decision making. We've actually employed a number of those squeegee workers, and they are out as our peer ambassadors, and they are doing outreach directly on alongside of us. And sometimes it is that peer ambassador. It's that person that you know who has walked a mile in your shoes that's really able to change your heart and your mind. And so we do believe that um, the word is getting out among squeegee workers that these areas 
areas are no longer allowed for safety reasons. Yeah, of course, those those are the folks that are going to have the most credibility with the squeegee workers. Of course. Um, there was a, a concern when this plan was announced that uh, the squeegee workers would simply move to other locations. So you're not disallowing it at all locations. You're just disallowing it in particular in these six that you've identified, in, at least initially. Um, have you found that people are simply doing it other places? So, um, so we uh, yes and no. So we, I have, um, we have seen where some squeegee workers have moved over a block or two. But again, these are zones, right? Like they're not just a small patch of an area. Um, they are actual zones. And so this is again about disrupting the economy and encouraging squeegee workers, um, especially young people who are squeegee workers, to pursue alternative pathways. And so that is what our outreach teams are out there doing. They are um, engaging with squeegee workers and they're not telling them you're not allowed here, move over there. They're telling them that this activity is no longer allowed and the culture in Baltimore is shifting and we want to take you along um, as the culture in Baltimore shifts and we want to put you on a productive pathway. And so that has been our message as we are out there engaging young people. It is not, you can't be here, you should move there. It is, we have uh, better, more positive alternatives that can lead for a brighter future for you and your family. Um, one of the recommendations of the Squeegee Collaborative uh, was to work with the Squeegee leadership team to develop a code of conduct for self-regulation. Of course, that implies that uh, the, the practice is going to continue. But uh, has that been developed uh, in these uh, initial uh, in, in this initial period of the of the program? So um, even as we were working together as a part of the collaborative, um, you know, this was something that we discussed, right? And as the squeegee uh, leadership team was out surveying other squeegee workers, these were the types of um, things that came up in their conversation. Is this code of conduct, right? Um, and so while we haven't finalized a code of conduct, the early makings of that code of conduct um, really were developing and coming out of the work that the squeegee leadership team did when they were out surveying um, other squeegee workers. Um, one of the recommendations had to do with working with the business community uh, through a thing called Civic Innovators, which is a public-private partnership to, uh, you know, evaluate uh, what structures exist and to create the ones that, that might be needed. Um, are there uh, businesses that are participating in creating uh, job and training opportunities for some of these squeegee workers? Tom, we have the best business community in the country, hands down. Um, the business community has stepped up everyone from Care First to Under Armour to MNT Bank. We just have had so many business leaders, both big and small, that have really um, just stepped up to support these young people. Just uh, about two weeks ago, right before we started the um, implementation of the enforcement, we actually held an event at the UA House over on Fayette in partnership with Living Classrooms, Under Armour, um, a number of business partners. And we had over 150 young people that showed up on that day. And they were able to interview for jobs. Uh, they were able to get haircuts. Um, and it was all about putting those young people on a productive pathway. And you will hear, hear me continuously say that because we understand that this is a process, right? Not one event, not one, you know, job interview um, is going to be the thing that completely wipes away squeegeeing in our community. But what we do know and understand in the business community has been 
an amazing partner throughout this process is that it is going to take time and it is going to take a commitment from not just city government, but also small and big business to really wrap our arms around these young people and get them connected to opportunity. And so, yes, the business community has been absolutely supportive. The business community has stepped up, as you mentioned, through civic innovators. And so the supporting the mayor's office of African-American male engagement is a project that Center civic innovators will lead. Um, I believe they will start their work in March. Um, and we expect to see um, some really amazing outcomes because this is all facets of Baltimore, the community, faith leaders, business, government, who are coming together, bringing their resources to be able to support and wrap their arms around our city's young people. And although we're talking about squeegeeing, right? And squeegeeing is a bit of a finite group of young people. It is somewhere between, um, we believe, 150 to 200 young people that have squeegeed at some point, majority young people. I, I use that phrase interchangeably. But this is a model that we can employ to support boys and young men of color across the city who may be disconnected from school and work. And so that's how we're looking at this Ouija collaborative work is we are building a model that we hope to deploy across this city. Faith Leach is the Baltimore City Deputy Mayor of Equity Health and Human Services. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. If you have a comment or a question for Deputy Director or Deputy Mayor uh, Faith Leach, 410-662-8780, or email midday at wypr.org. You can tweet us at midday. WIPR. And uh, uh, Deputy Mayor, when I've talked to the mayor about this or the police commissioner or uh, various people, uh, even uh, Joe Jones and John Brothers, who uh, headed up the uh, squeegee collaborative uh, effort, um, they, they say that there uh, is, in many cases, you know, some reluctance on the part of the squeegee workers to get involved in other forms of employment, to, to, to do the job training or to return to school because the money is good. Uh, for a lot of these squeegee workers. Uh, are you finding that, that that tide is beginning to, to shift? Are you finding more re receptivity? I mean, you talked about this job fair um, at the UA uh, Center the other day, and, and uh, you know, the, the turnout you're talking about seems pretty substantial to me. I mean, is that changing that people are saying, okay, you're right, squeegeeing isn't a long-term prospect for me, so I need to really be looking seriously at some alternatives. So, yes, I think we are starting to see that tide. Um, a part of this is we've disrupted the economy in a way that hasn't been disrupted for decades. Um, and so for a number of years, squeegee workers were able to, you know, to squeegee in the ways in which they chose to squeegee. Now we are coming in and we're, um, you know, overlaying that with enforcement, right? So now you have police officers that are going to be, that are stationed along President Street that are um, along Conway and then over um, at Mount Royal in I-83. That wasn't there before. And so we are now regulating uh, the economy of squeegeeing in a way that hasn't been regulated before, and they are forced to adjust. And that is why we want to be there with this safety net. So as we are adjusting, right, and as we are disrupting the culture of squeegeeing and disrupting the economy of squeegeeing, that we have a safety net in place so that these squeegee workers can fall back on um, that positive, productive pathway that you've heard me talk about.
And can you explain for for folks what the uh, enforcement measures are? Because they're different for kids under the age of eighteen than they are for those older people. Um, and and uh, you know, explain uh, the you know the sort of carrot and stick uh, approach that the the collaborative came up with. Yeah, absolutely. This is a holistic approach. And we actually looked at multiple plans. So we've seen there have been at least six squeegee plans um, over the past few years that tried to tackle tackle this issue. And one of the things that we noticed um, in all of the plans is, is that there was not a true enforcement mechanism in place. And so our enforcement mechanism is one that we um, hope is thoughtful, um, but it also over indexes on services and wraparound supports for squeegee workers. And so on the enforcement, um, the squeegee workers that are operating in disallowed zones will receive two warnings. Um, after they receive two warnings, and the warnings will be from police officers, at the second warning, they will also receive a referral for services. Um, but at the third interaction um, with uh, BPD and a squeegee worker, they will then receive a citation. And then that citation will move on to be prosecuted by the state's attorney's office. And at this point, how many citations have been uh, issued so far? I mean, have you had, so, are we at that point with any of these uh, young people in just this first week? No, so we are not at the point of citation just yet. A part of this is also building the muscle of um, the police department and also, you know, shifting the culture of the police department as well, because this has not been something that they have enforced. And so right now we have issued warnings. Um, we have issued uh, at least six warnings is what I was told as of this morning. Um, while we have interacted with more than six squeegee workers, what happens is oftentimes is our outreach workers are able to intercept the squeegee workers before um, the police officers are deployed to a location. And so, you know, if the squeegee workers leave that location before the uh, interacting with the police officers, they don't receive a formal warning. Um, also, what is happening is our outreach team is warning, you know, they're making squeegee workers aware that the police department will be there. Um, and um, oftentimes, whenever the squeegee workers see the police officers, they're immediately leaving the location so that they don't receive a warning. But as of today, I believe it's been six warnings that have been issued. And my understanding is that the enforcement also applies to motorists who are in cars. I mean, if someone is uh, found to be giving money to a squeegee worker in a prohibited zone, what happens to that motorist? So we actually have not implemented any enforcement for for, um, motorists, but it is something that the collaborative has talked about. Um, and it is something that we, um, you know, are looking into. What we have um, created um, for motorists, for those individuals who want to give, we want you to be able to support squeegee workers um, and anyone that's soliciting, but in a way that is not disrupted to the disruptive to the flow of traffic. And so we actually worked with um, multiple partners, so Baltimore Core, John Brothers from T. Rowe Price, um, to build um, a, a, a crowdfunding um, platform called um, BeMoreShine.org. And when you go to BeMoreShine.org, you'll actually see the stories of five squeegee workers. Um, And each of those young people are um, raising money for any number of things, everything from, you know, going to an HVAC program or getting a CDL. Um, And so drivers who want to give will be able to give through that crowdfunding platform. 
And you've always emphasized that uh, this is a work in progress. You're going to be making adjustments as you progress through, uh, you know, the, the various seasons of the year. I mean, obviously, uh, perhaps now is the time of year there are going to be fewer squeegee workers anyway because of the temperature and the weather. Uh, it may be a different story when the weather gets nicer in the spring and the summer. But um, are you anticipating any particular adjustments in the next you know, six, eight, ten weeks. I mean, what are you keeping an eye on? What are you making yeah. sure you're you're you know particularly hip to, so that um, you know you can you can make adjustments if needed. Yep. So you know, I often talk about using data to drive decision making, and so we use data to determine the six disallowed zones, and those were the zones where we were getting the most call three one one nine one one calls for service um, and reports of squeegee incidents, as well as uh, traffic issues. Um, and so we will continue to use that data to drive our decision making. We're actually in the process of um, you know developing a weekly report where we're going to be able to track these interactions um, with squeegee workers, everything from a wall walk away, a direct interaction, a warning to a citation, we want to be able to track all of that data because that will help us um, as we make adjustments and other decisions. Also, the kind of mobility patterns, right? So if squeegee workers are leaving one disallowed zone, where are they migrating to? Is this also a high traffic intersection? Um, and so that's the type of data that we'll be pulling over the course of the next few months. And then come spring, we'll be making adjustments to our zones. We may expand our zones. We may shift our zones. Um, but we are going to use the data and allow that data to drive the decisions that we make for the city. Do you have ample uh, numbers of outreach workers. Uh, you mentioned the uh, Office of African American Male Engagement. Uh, at one point, they were talking about having police cadets uh, employed mm -hmm. or deployed uh, in this effort. Um, you know, there are 6,500 openings for staff positions in the in the state government that Governor Moore, Governor Elect Moore, has talked about trying to fill. Uh, Mayor Scott has talked about a huge shortage of workers at the DPW and other agencies in the in city government. Uh, how about this effort? Do you have enough people uh, to be able to, uh, to, to do the kind of coverage and interaction with squeegee workers that you anticipate you'll need? Yeah, so um, we are always recruiting for um, more outreach staff. So the Mayor's Office of African American Male Engagement is recruiting for, um, for outreach staff that work directly within their office. Um, but we are partnering with community-based organizations to supplement our outreach staff. So we're working with WRS and the Peace Team and Project NUMRA and others um, so that they can help us in monitoring the corners um, and those disallowed zones and engaging with young people. But we could always use more helping hands who really want to support um, and see our young people thrive. Uh, we have a caller from Govins. Amy is on the line. Amy, welcome to Midday with Deputy Mayor Faith Leach. Yes, thank you um, for hearing my concern. Uh, I appreciate the efforts being being made to help um, with this particular situation of, of squeegee kids. It's very difficult. Um, I, I have an issue that is related, um, but it's more sim a simple sort of thought: is that why are why is anyone allowed to be walking in the streets? Walking, <laughs> people who beg for money, you know, um, um, squeegee kids, putting themselves in dangerous situations, putting drivers in dangerous situations. Um, again, not to dismiss the importance of, of the issue you're addressing, and I uh, okay. fully applaud the efforts. 
All right. Well, thanks. Thanks for the question. And and uh, Deputy Mayor, do these uh, enforcement uh, regulations uh, also apply to people who are not squeegeeing but who are simply panhandling? Yes. So um, this applies to anyone that is panhandling or soliciting in a disallowed zone. And to answer the caller's question about why this is allowed, uh, in every major city in the country, you will see individuals who are panhandling um, and or soliciting. Right. And the reason why you see that is because the Supreme Court has um, has viewed this as being a First Amendment protected right. Uh, and so the way that we are even able to do these disallowed zones is because we are um, we are actually carving out a specific area. Right. So we are not completely completely cutting off the rights of squeegee workers and or solicitors or panhandlers. What we are doing is we are narrowly tailoring our approach in order to meet the public safety demands of our city. Right. And so that is why, because I've, I've, I've had that question a number of times, why only six disallowed zones? Right. And so this is our way of not doing just, um, you know, just this blanket banning, um, which could face a legal appeal, which the city has faced some legal appeals as it relates to squeegee workers and their rights previously. And so this is an approach that we believe balanced the public safety interests of our city as well as um, the rights of solicitors and panhandlers, including squeegee workers. In terms of the squeegee collaboratives outreach to the workers themselves, I know when I spoke to John Brothers and Joe Jones about this a few weeks ago, uh, it was you know a real central fundament of this plan was to involve uh, you know cohorts of uh, people who were doing squeegeeing. Um, is the collaborative continuing to meet? Will will the will the adjustments being made uh, as as you move forward be made? You know, in, again in consultation with the squeegee workers themselves. What what are you hearing from uh, the the folks who are involved in the collaborative effort uh, who are you know uh, current or former squeegee workers? Yeah. So the collaborative is continuing to meet. So we have a small group um, that meets actually every single morning um, with the Baltimore Police Department, the law department, as well as some of the a handful of collaborative members as we are monitoring implementation. Um, the full collaborative will be meeting um, around monthly. So we actually have a collaborative meeting that's going to be coming up in the next few weeks um, because we want to be able to keep the entire collaborative apprised of the progress that we're making. Um, we also have a number of smaller working groups. We, so we have a group that's focused on communication. We have um, a small working team that's focused on data. Um, so the collaborative is very active and continuing to meet and work on these issues. Well, this is a plan that, uh, as you say, uh, I think is distinguished in many ways from prior plans. Uh, I think a lot of thought uh, from a lot of thoughtful people have gone into it. So uh, I wish you all the best with it. I think this is uh, one of the most you know, sophisticated and, and thoughtful uh, approaches to this issue uh, that we've seen in our city in a long time. So thank you for your time uh, telling us about it. And we'll have you back to, uh, to keep us surprised. Awesome. Thank you. Faith Leach is the Baltimore City Deputy Mayor of Equity, Health, and Human Services. Coming up, a lawyer from Georgetown Law talks about racial disparities in the criminal justice system. Kristen Henning is the author of The Rage of Innocence, How America Criminalizes Black Youth. She joins me on the other side of a quick break. But before we go to that break, each week here on Midday, it's our practice to read the names of people who have lost their lives to violence in Baltimore City and to list their names on the Midday webpage. 
We do so to stand in witness to their untimely deaths and to remember their families and friends in their hour of grief. So far this year, 12 people have lost their lives to violence in Baltimore. Police have identified Dustin Davis, age 32, as a person whose death was first reported the week before last. Corey Hopkins was shot in November of 2014. He died from complications caused by his injuries last October. Last week, the city medical examiner ruled his death a homicide. Corey Hopkins was 39 years old. Ellsworth Johnson Bay was the victim of a physical assault in May of last year, and he died last September. His death has also been ruled a homicide. Ellsworth Johnson Bay was 75 years old. Four people fell victim to homicide in our city last week. They are Aaron Dorsey, age 38, Jimmy Bailey, age 25, Ronnie Gibson Jr., age 39, and Joseph Kawa. He was 18 years old. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. We'll be right back. This is your public radio, 881 WYPR.